Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight's Book Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we have a very special episode, but before I just want to remind, before we get into it, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books is currently open for uh, limited browsing. We're still practicing social distancing and um, all safety procedures, so make sure you bring your masks, stay six feet apart from everyone, but come on by, we're open. We also offer curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. So you can order your books there and pick up still get your books. Um, so today for a special uh, episode, we're welcoming Jonathan Ames, who this is who has an event with us on 420 uh, with Nick Kroll for his new book, A Man Named Doll. That's at 630, you can sign up on our uh, website. And then he also has an in-person signing at 424, on 424 at Nosa Restaurant from two to four. So if you wanna meet him, come on by. And this is gonna be a special pre-show uh, episode where we get to know Jonathan before his event. So thank you, Jonathan, for being here today. Thank you for having me, Lance. So, I mean, the podcast listeners can't see you, but I'm happy <laughs> to see you. As you said, I'm getting to see you without a mask. Yeah. I see you in the store quite frequently because I'm in there at least once a week. And know. like, and yeah, you guys might know Jonathan from all of his amazing work in television, literature, his amazing essays, performer, you were a performer for a while. You are a performer, but like we know Jonathan just as like Jonathan who comes in every week to come pick up his books. And one of, I will say, one of the most impressive readers I think we have at the bookstore too. You, like, I don't think we ever see you leave with less than like four books, you would say, on average. I'm, I'm like a book hoarder. I'm so behind on them all. But then I, there's something I want to pick up. So I go to the store, then I get more. And mm -hmm. then, I don't know, I just, I feel like I could just, be swallowed alive by books happily. I just, you know, I mean, right. I feel like somebody with a thing of popcorn. It's like books, books, <laughs> it's like, and my house is overflowing with them. Yeah. I, I love books. As a kid, the one thing my parents indulged me in, mm -hmm. um, you know, couldn't necessarily have a new bicycle or anything like that, which is, I'm not, oh, look, I'm, it's not a sob story, but the one thing I could have a lot of was books. Mm -hmm. Like every month you could order, from Scholastic, right. and oh, I would always be the kid who got the most books. You know, like 
Peanuts cartoon books, like biographies of football quarterbacks, things like that. And so it's like, I haven't really changed much because now I go to Skylight, I load up on books. Yeah. And the same thing in my childhood room, I always had a ton of books by my bed. And I kind of like, a, like a hot water for, And thank you for oh. paying my paycheck at Skylight when I'm joking. Uh, no, you were that kid in the Scholastics kid that I would be jealous of too, because I would also, I'd be like, I want more books like that over there. I mean, no, that's books are, I mean, yeah. I'm glad to know that books are such an integral, integral part of your history too. Um, yeah, like what, um, what brought you into the world of literature to start off? Well, I think, I think it was that early thing of that my mom gave me carte blanche for ordering the books. Like I, I wasn't allowed to buy music um you know have a lot of other things again it wasn't you know a difficult childhood but uh, so i think it was that early thing of just that was the one area where i was like i could get as many books as i wanted just about i'm sure it was within reason but it seemed like most kids got one or two but i usually got three or four and i just loved it every month um and then my mom you know later in life became a poet my father is a big reader and then in the seventh grade, a, a teacher, you know, the importance of teachers took, yeah. you know, an interest in me and said, um, you seem like a real reader. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wanted to give me books outside of what we were reading in our in my English class. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me Tarzan, the first Tarzan book by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which I loved. And I actually still have my Tarzan collection. And then he told me to read, um, you know, The Hobbit, and I think he gave me The Hobbit. And then I read The Lord of the Rings. And so this really opened my eyes that there was more than just, you know, probably I was reading Encyclopedia Brown and these kinds of books, which are fun, but this was like getting to the next level. And then, and then in high school, I somehow found Kurt Vonnegut. And I was like, oh my gosh, things are even more interesting out there in the world of books. And then I had another teacher in my sophomore year in high school take an interest in me and she got me writing for the school paper and the local newspaper. And so just, I think it was a combination. And my mom was a school teacher of being, uh, having parents that love to read that always had books around, uh, having some beautiful teachers take an interest in me and encourage me to read more. And uh, every writer is a reader. You know, you only become a writer for the most part uh, if you love to read. Mm -hmm. And because then you want to be part of this continuum. You've been given so much solace and made to feel less alone in the world through books that you then want to add to this stream. And then also, um, you know, I always used to tell my writing students, you know, write the kind of books you love to read, write the kind of stories you love to read, because th that's what captivates you. And so then you could give to readers the way you have been given to at one time. Mm -hmm. And also by writing the kind of books you love to read or the stories, that's what you've been apprenticing in. I don't know if apprenticing is a word, but that's what you've been doing your apprenticeship in. You've been reading these books and to so get into your mind, perhaps how to create yourself. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, how true is that? Like the... I mean, escapism of both reading and writing. So seems so hand in hand, yeah. So with your school newspaper, were you like writing 
fiction, nonfiction, essays, just or articles, journalism? Well, it started off with sports because I was on uh, the junior varsity soccer team and I really twisted my ankle. So I wasn't going to be able to play. And, but my sophomore English teacher said, why don't you write about the games? Uh, there's this local, you know, one of those weekly newspapers, yeah. you know, I forget what it was called, darn. Um, I didn't say damn, but anyway, uh, but now I just did. Oh my God. Beep. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, so I started writing about the games I had to attend and I made them quite much more romantic. Like, mm -hmm. oh, the wind was whipping, the sky was overcast. And then, you know, Joe Needle went running down the field and scored. Oh my, you know, like I made yeah. it, you know, like, right. like, like, it, like it was out of Tolkien. <laughs> and so I began publishing actually for this small a newspaper that allowed uh, high school students or one or two high school students to write little articles. And then that, from that, she then started this uh, wonderful teacher started having me write sports articles for the school paper, which was called Drum Beats. And, um, and then eventually I became the editor of the paper, I think by the end of my junior year. So mm -hmm. all the stuff I was writing for the paper, I I guess it was ostensibly nonfiction. Though I began to write these very comedic pieces where I wrote about my obsession with video games, or I wrote about, uh, I, I did like a, a false article that a study had been done about high school seniors losing their minds because of the pressure of college applications and SATs. And oh, and I called it, it I came up with this dis disorder called cramps, college rejection application manifestation phobia. Because it, everything seemed to be about you had to get into a good college or get into college. And if you right. didn't, oh, my gosh, what was going to happen to you? So I was and then with that same teacher, though, I think she had a creative writing class, which she encouraged me to join. Maybe it was like half a high school semester or something. And so I wrote, as I guess, the final project, a long, short story called Keep Out of the Reach of Children. Or, or, and it had a subtitle, Pesticide 7, because I think there was controversy about a pesticide at that time. This was like late 70s, early 80s, New Jersey. And I did it very much in the form of my hero, Kurt Vonnegut. And I even did little drawings the way he did in Breakfast of Champions. And then later in life, I think it was 1993, a very sweet older couple in New York I, I, took me under their wing. I was living in such a small apartment with a roommate that I didn't have a desk to write on. So they gave me a spare bedroom in their townhouse on 48th Street in Manhattan between 3rd and 2nd Avenue. And I would look out my window from this spare bedroom of one of their adult children who had grown up that I was using as an office. And who was across the street? Kurt Vonnegut, sitting on his stoop, smoking cigarettes. And now for, the, and for this family, I, in exchange for the room, I would often do tasks for them and things like that. And so they had a big cocktail party one time and I was like the bartender waiter and mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut came and I told him that he, I loved him and that he was my favorite writer. And he said, thank you so much for telling me. And then the old movie star, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was also there. And when I brought him a drink across the crowded room, he said, you're too kind. And then later I gave that same line to Patrick Stewart in my TV show, Blunt Talk, when a bartender mm -hmm. brings him a drink you're too kind and at that same uh cocktail party 
and Mayor Koch was there, Ed Koch. And he didn't think I was a waiter or bartender because I must have been wearing a blazer. And he thought mm -hmm. I was, and he wanted to talk to me saying, what are you doing here? Like, cause I guess I was younger than everybody else. I said, well, I'm the waiter, would you like a drink? <laughs> so anyway, um, so yeah, high school teachers, mm -hmm. high school newspaper, these are some of the things that, and then, you know, by the end of my senior year, I had the dream and hope to be a writer and my wonderful high school English teacher, Ann Peters, wrote in my yearbook, I expect a signed copy of your first novel. This was in 1982. And in 1989, seven years later, I published my first novel, I Passed Like Night. And the first person I sent a copy to was her. Okay. And uh, later she attended a reading of mine, of my second book, mm -hmm. and a really great lady, Ann Peters. Thank you, Ann. This thing. Thank you, Anne. Yes. I mean, it is teachers like those that, like, I mean, yeah, inspired so many writers that we have. So thank you to those teachers as well who yeah. did all that, did the groundwork, right? Um, all the teachers out there who might hear this podcast, thank you. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're so important in our society. Yeah. And I hope amongst the many changes that will come that teachers will be, you know, greater rewarded and compensated and valued um i mean i i believe that like i mean there's not a person out there who hasn't affected in some way by a teacher like everyone I, I, but i can go on and on about teachers and educators and how they deserve more uh but then would it then this would be an about teachers episode right which i mean we should do i uh, maybe that's we'll put that on the back burner for now um my next thing for you is you're kind of a cool jack of all trades kind of guy like you've done you 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 you've written fiction essays um novellas you've performed you you've created and written for television like that's i mean <laughs> impressive seems like an understatement but like yeah how does i mean like how does each of them kind of like represent you in your career like uh, it just it seems so amazing to get to like have like so many hats you can change around and you're wearing um, a hat now so this is per i you know what i saw you wearing a hat too and i was just like <laughs> Symbolism meets litter. Uh, symbolism meets realism, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, how does it feel to be like that kind of, to have all these skills? Yeah, I mean, I've done many different things, all of which I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, so I began as a novelist, mm -hmm. 1989, my first book, I Passed Like Night, uh, which amazingly was blurbed uh, by Joyce Carol Oates and Philip Roth. Mm -hmm. And after that book came out, I had a really bad case of second novelitis. I suddenly had this consciousness of, about what it meant to publish something. And, yeah. and I, I got very stuck for many years. Um, and, uh, and I was very broke. Um, and I was struggling to write a second book. And then, I, and I was driving a taxi for about two years Mm -hmm. And and then I wanted to be able to teach. It seemed the one way a writer could support themselves was through teaching. And because nobody would give me a job, you know, even though I, I published a novel, that wasn't, right. you know, I, 
and I didn't really have many skills. I was a good taxi driver. I liked it. I drove in uh, the town of Princeton, New Jersey, where I'd gone to school. And then, um, and then uh, I ended up uh, driving a taxi in the town, you know? And so I was on the taxi stand. This was before cell phones and everything. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so some of my former teachers would walk by and see me you know, standing with the other drivers and everything, but it was the only job I could get. And I was had stayed living in town. Anyway, um, but I got a lot of reading done. You know, I read Anna Karenina, The Magic Mountain. I would sit in my cab and I was trying to go through some of the classics. Mm -hmm. um, but then I was just like, all right, I've got to get a degree so I could teach. So I, I got into Columbia MFA program, went to Columbia and the, almost the very first week, this, uh, a great writer, Richard Price, was giving a seminar. Mm -hmm. And he said that he had published two novels very quickly when he was young. And then he put out a third book because he was like, I'm a good dog if I'm published and a bad dog if I'm not published. Like, you know, his own, we're all so hard on ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I related, I'm like, yeah, I'm a bad dog. I haven't written a second novel. But yeah. he said, you can't just put something out there because you're trying to, you know, have this idea of what success is or career, or you have to, you can only put out there what you love, what you've been obsessed by. You can't just, you know, try to keep up with your mind of other writers. You have to be in love with what you write about. And I was like, oh my God, that's the problem. I've been with this second novel, just trying to write another book because that's what I thought I needed to do, like getting into college right. or, you know, keeping up somehow. Anyway, so for the next, I, f I found a subject matter I loved, which became my novel, The Extra Man, mm -hmm. which was all about an eccentric playwright and a young man, their friendship, and then also pre-Giuliani Times Square and the whole crazy world down there. So for the next four or five years, I scraped by lots of part-time jobs. Eventually, I did get a degree. I started teaching at night at a business college. I, you know, I taught uh, adult evening writing class. It was very hard to get a college teaching job, even though I published a book. So for the next four or five years, I worked on this second book. And, and around that time, because I had been blocked, I also began performing at night in little clubs in New York, doing monologues. Like I, I was struggling to write, but I found I could get on stage and just talk and tell funny stories like my role model, Spalding Gray. Anyway, uh, great monologue. So in 96, 97, I finished this book, 96, took about five, four or five years to write, and I got rejected by every publisher in New York City, and I was devastated. And a friend of mine at the time said, whatever you hold on to will cause you pain, so a Buddhist notion of attachment. And I realized I was holding on to this dream of being a writer still, even after what Richard Price had told me. And I realized I had to let go of that dream and maybe find something else to do with my life. Mm -hmm. um, because I, this book wasn't going to sell. I just spent five years writing it. And it, you know, now it had been seven years since my first book came out. And so, but then, so I began to let it go. And I thought, all right, I gotta find some other kind of work, but I can still write and you know, maybe I can teach find another kind of teaching job. I was mostly, again, teaching these like adult classes at night mm -hmm. and could, you know, barely getting by, but I was performing. Then suddenly one of the editors who had been sent the book turned out she hadn't rejected it. 
she simply hadn't read it for six months and it had just been sitting on her desk because mm -hmm. she had a, a litter agent. She wouldn't return calls. So we thought, okay, it's dead. But then suddenly she wants it. And it was very connected to me letting go of that dream. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that book eventually came out in 1998, The Extra Man. And around that time, um, again, I started teaching more creative writing classes. I had my own private creative writing classes, doing anything to get by. Mm -hmm. And um, I somehow landed a column for this throwaway newspaper called the New York Press, because mm -hmm. actually a friend of mine, when it looked like my book was gonna be utterly rejected, you know, the kindness of other people, we mentioned strangers. This friend of mine who had been writing for this paper called New York Press, which doesn't exist anymore, mm -hmm. read him some of my novel. And the guy said, I'll publish that, which again also occurred around that time where I was like, I have to let go of this dream of being a writer. I'm too attached to it. Mm -hmm. And so this paper started, published a bit of my novel. And then I, and then I started writing essays for them, somewhat based on similar to the monologues I'd been doing on stage. And, um, and then eventually they gave me a column, which I wrote from 1997 to 2000 Every two weeks, I got 200 bucks a column. So now I was pulling in 400 bucks a month, plus my teaching. I'm sorry I mentioned money a lot because a lot of the what has motivated my writing was to pay the rent. I mean, yeah. you don't really, you don't really make that much from books, or at least I feel like writing I don't talk about that as much about like that need. Yeah, it's like you got to pay the rent. We love writing, but like got to pay the rent. Yeah. Right. So, so I get this column because, you know, I'd started writing some pieces. I would submit them, you know, for about a year and they liked them. And, and so then I asked them for a column and at first they said no. And then they changed their mind, which changed my life. So mm -hmm. for the next three years, I wrote two columns a month, about 1200 words, you know, got like 400 a month. Mm -hmm. That was keeping, helped keep me afloat. I had a very cheap apartment in New York for a little while there. I got a rent controlled place. And and then at a certain so that's how I got into writing all these essays, which ended up becoming like four essay books because I had to produce so much. And then some magazine editors would read those columns in this throwaway paper, which was very popular there for a little while in New York, kind of pre-internet uh, or pre the explosion of the internet. You know where you could only get weird alternative writers in this paper. Now, of course, on the internet, there's tons of people out there. Right. Um, and so um, anyway, but this paper was really cool, New York Press. I mean, like JT Leroy, before we everyone knew who JT Leroy <laughs> wrote for it. Um, uh, there was just a lot of interesting writers. I think Dave Eggers wrote something for them, David Sedaris, you know, they really got really fun, unusual writers. Amy Sohn, mm -hmm. uh, they had a dominatrix, had a column. They had all sorts of interesting people. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I wrote all these essays for them. And then sometimes magazines would read those essays and be like, could you write for us? And so then I would write, and usually those got rejected because like GQ would be like, write for us. And then I'd write for them and be like, oh, this isn't really GQ. But I'm like, well, you asked me. <laughs> anyway, but it's okay, GQ is great. Um, but many magazines did that. And a few of them did publish my stuff, but then I would always repurpose it, publish it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times magazines would start up, I'd write something for them, then they would die. But I collected all these in four different books. And unfortunately, by the end of my essay writing time, which ended in the early 2000s, 
I was kind of repeating myself and, and it was needed to stop. And I was using myself as subject matter and I, I admired that too much. So then I'm like, I've got to write another novel. So I wrote my novel, Wake Up, Sir, mm -hmm. which was an homage to P.G. Woodhouse. And then, and then all along I was always performing and just hustling and trying to make it as best I could. And then amazingly, because I gave a reading at Skylight Books in 2002, I, that's right, I paid for my own little book tour because a, a publisher wouldn't put me, give me a book tour, but I got my own little book tour together, Skylight Books, uh, a nice San Francisco bookstore, I can't remember the name, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe, a, uh, and then perhaps Powell's up in Portland. Mm -hmm. And I uh, rented a car and I drove up the coast. Wow. Anyway, I gave this reading in 2002 at Skylight and, or maybe, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 2002. And this young producer was in there. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think there's a, a TV show in your essays. And so for like a year, he and I emailed. Mm -hmm. um, and during that time, David Letterman discovered me because because of the performing I had done in the early 90s, I never got discovered, but mm -hmm. someone who used to come to my shows a decade earlier had become the talent booker on Letterman. Gave him one of my novels, The Extra Man, because he was a voracious reader. He loved it, yeah. I guess he told her that. And, and, he, and she said, well, you know, maybe you should have him on. He's really funny mm -hmm. on stage. And she used to come to my shows 10 years before. And so 2003, 2004, suddenly Letterman had me on three times uh, and, you know, promoting uh, my novels, The Extra Man and Wake Up, Sir. And then I was corresponding with this young producer. So I came out to L.A. to pitch a TV show based on one of my essay books called What's Not to Love. And I pitched it as a poor man's curb your enthusiasm. But I said, I'm literally poor. The quality of the show won't be poor. Right. And amazingly, Showtime gave me an opportunity. I'd never written a script before, but I quickly read a bunch to get a sense of the form, got final draft you know, on the computer, <laughs> wrote, a, wrote a pilot called What's Not to Love, and I got to play myself. Oh my Except the problem was I wasn't very good in the role. You know, it was the role I'd been waiting for and then I, I wasn't very good. So uh, maybe I was okay, I don't know. Anyway, that didn't go to series. And it seemed like I had had my shot at Hollywood. I was 40 years old and I would come out to LA. I'd stay in motels. I'd have all these meetings. A comedian once said a million meetings, no deals. And, and eventually I told the people, you know what? Um, I'm not going to come out here anymore. Thank you so much for trying, you know, these agents. I'm just going to go back to my path of trying to get a college teaching job because at that point I was getting adjunct positions, but I never could get a full-time position in which you could get insurance pay. Like I didn't have insurance for at least 20 years. I didn't go to a dentist for so long, but I, I did my own teeth cleaning. And amazingly, when I went to the dentist after 20 years, when I finally got insurance, they're like, no cavities. And then I think I got lazy because I'm like, oh, I, I know how to handle my teeth. And then I suddenly started getting cavities after I had insurance. I mean, whatever. Anyway, I think there's a conspiracy there for sure. Yeah, but I, I did stop brushing as much, you know, so there you go. And ah. and scraping, I, I get, would get this little scraper for like 20 years. Oh anyway, um, so I fail at the TV thing 
I say, no more, I can't come to LA anymore. I can't afford to fly out here. I had all this debt I was carrying for years. Uh, I'm just gonna try to make it as a teacher and a novelist. And so about two years later though, I get an email from one of the Hollywood agents mm -hmm. saying, hey, there's someone in New York that's meeting writers and would like to meet you. And I kind of thought, I thought I said no more meetings, but you know, I was like, not gonna do something rude like that. Right. And it was in New York. So I'm like, okay, what the heck? And so I went to this meeting. I actually showed up late because I'd been out. I used to live very hard mm -hmm. the night before. I almost didn't go, but a very nice woman uh, named Sarah Condon. She's basically said, do you have anything in your drawer? You know, that, that could, you know, what, what do you got going? And I had written this short story called Bored to Death. Mm -hmm. And I'd written it for Esquire magazine and they had rejected it. They had uh, commissioned me to write a short story and then they rejected it. Right. And, and so I'm like, but then I sent it to Dave Eggers at McSweeney's mm -hmm. and I'd written it in the style of my essays to mess with people about mm -hmm. Jonathan Ames, the first person who puts an ad on Craigslist, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to be a private detective. And Dave Eggers wrote me back saying, did this really happen? I'm like, it worked. I wrote it like my essays and he really thinks I became a private detective. And that first short story was a lot like the pilot of Bored to Death, except mm -hmm. it had a more violent ending. Oh, wow. Anyway, so, and I had sent it to the Hollywood people, but nobody even wrote me back. Mm -hmm. I meet with this woman, June of 2007. And I, I say, well, I've got this short story. I, Cause I felt it had cinematic qualities. I thought it could be a movie. Maybe, but I knew this was a meeting about TV. She was a TV producer who had a deal at HBO. So I said, I got this story and I kind of told her about it. I said, I'm intrigued. She said, send it to me. So I sent it to her that night. She mm -hmm. read it and she wants to develop it with me. Oh my God. So a few months later, again, scrape together the money, fly to LA. And with her, I pitched this show, you know, bored to death. Mm -hmm. And HBO was somewhat aware of me because of my performing. I had been asked to perform at the Aspen Comedy Festival, which HBO used to sponsor. So they were somewhat aware of me. And I'd had that failed TV thing several years before with Showtime. Mm -hmm. And anyway, they loved the pitch and they commissioned me to write a script. And I had also, it was a really great time. I'd finally gotten a good teaching job, not full-time, but I, I, was, I taught for a semester at uh, Iowa, University of Iowa, the writing program, wonderful students there, many of whom have gone on to publish. I have one of my former students' books right here, Outlawed by Anna North. Another one of my students was Benjamin Hale, wrote a wonderful book, something, uh, oh, the evolution of Bruno, oh gosh, I'm screwing it up. Ben, should you hear this, which I'm sure you won't, but not saying that this podcast isn't far reaching, but anyway, maybe it was the evolution of Bruno Littlemore. If I pulled okay. that out, I'd be impressed with my own adult mind. Benjamin, anyway, we'll, we'll do uh, a, I said, yeah. I was gonna say, we'll just do like a Benjamin, like a, if it's, we'll do like a little like disclaimer at the end for Benjamin or something. Yeah, I think I may have gotten the title right. I think it was the evolution of Bruno Littlemore. That's a really brilliant novel. Anna's a brilliant novelist. You know, so many wonderful students were there. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, um, I'm going on a long ramble. So HBO wants me to write this pilot, but then the writer strike happened. So yeah. I didn't write it for eight or nine months, but then I quickly wrote it. I was really pleased because I got so much more for a pilot that mm. I could write in a week than I would get for my novels that would take me years to write, but that's okay. 
this is the, the, the world we live in. So I write this pilot. Around that time, I meet Jason Schwartzman because he had read a script version I had written of my novel, Wake Up, Sir. Mm -hmm. And he and I meet. I, I had him meet at uh, this Jewish delicatessen down in Santa Monica, and then it turned mm -hmm. out he's vegan. I was like, oh gosh, that was a bad choice. But, um, uh, and, um, and he, I tell him about this bored to death script I'm writing. He goes, I'd love to do that too, along you know, with my novel, Wake Up, Sir. Mm -hmm. And anyway, he and I became friends and then everything came together with Bored to Death. With Hollywood stuff, I like to say, it's like a Swiss clock of luck. All the parts have to move just right and then you need luck. Mm -hmm. And so it all came together and we shot that TV pilot in 2008, became a series for three years. Then it got canceled, which was heartbreaking. And then, and so this all long-winded way of like, novels to essays to performing and the performing even though I never became well known in a weird way got me on Letterman so many years later and which was beautiful and then TV show for three years and again it was all the principle of like pay the rent mm -hmm. you want me to write a TV show okay I will you want me to be a showrunner I'll figure it out you know get yeah. out of debt this is awesome right and I was in my mid-40s by then and then so now after Bored to Death, I had another TV show called Blunt Talk. Um, my novel, The Extra Man, became a movie. Uh, I wrote the script and the directors worked on the script. They did a beautiful job. And then I wrote this, uh, and then I really got into genre writing, which is where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this novella, You Were Never Really Here. And because that got published in France, this French film, producer spotted it got it to the director Lynn Ramsey and then she made a beautiful movie mm -hmm. and then now I've written a man named Dahl because mm -hmm. I really love detective novels and it's the first in a series um, and at the end of the current you know the new book a man named Dahl is the first chapter of the next book so okay. anyway I this was my whole career thank you I, I, I hope <laughs> I haven't bored you or the listeners but that's how i've ended up doing all these things just it's all been improvised and but also trying to give to others you know when yeah. i'm on stage i think let me show these people a good time and then with the books i want to entertain and and with the tv shows i always wanted people to feel good at the end of an episode mm -hmm. uplifted that the people might be nutty in the shows but they were rooting for each other yeah, no, I mean, I feel when I watched your show, I was just like, when I watched, especially Bored to Death, I think of, I, one thing that speaks out to me is how like these characters are, have this sense of camaraderie. I feel like I don't see, usually you see like in these like detective or darker themed shows, you would see like a competition or people who like um, have all these secrets from each other or something. But I, this entire show, I was just like, this is, I, I don't know, it feels like, an iteration of Raymond Chandler-esque noir in a way that, but in a heartwarming way. I don't know. I, any, in, even especially with um, the cancellation of it, I feel like, you know, like when sh unfair things like that happen, I feel like cult, it becomes like even more important to the audiences. And yeah. like, whenever I feel like I hear people talk about bored to death, one thing that's always said is that, God, I should have gotten another season or, oh, that's so sad it ended. Or I got into it after it um, ended, but I, st and then I was just like, I wanted to come back, something like that. I feel like definitely that shows uh, 
there is still a growing following for it. So, but I wanted, I mean, with Bored to Death, especially, I just wanted to know, how was it writing a character that, I mean, you said that like you named after yourself and it was like this, you wanted to convince people that it was you in a way. Mm -hmm. So like seeing that on screen, a character named Jonathan Ames, mm -hmm. who is this eccentric and like, you know, lovable, this lovable character and how was it like seeing that come to life on screen yourself kind of did it feel like you on screen um i was oddly you know it somehow never in some ways it didn't penetrate like oh he's got my name because he seems so different or i was always just thinking of him as jason so even mm -hmm. if they called him jonathan in the script i'm like it's jason i don't know <laughs> and then also Jason was younger than me. And so in some ways the character was playing a younger version than me mm -hmm. and the character who I could sort of speak through more from where I was at that time in life was the Ted Danson character. Mm -hmm. Like, so, in, but you know, all of them spoke different parts of my mind, mm -hmm. but it, it was a delight. And even if it was heartbreaking that it got canceled, it was such a gift to be able to do that for three yeah. years. Cause like I used to say to people, Complaining about having my show canceled is like complaining about, oh, I've got caviar stuck between my teeth. You know, it's like, I got to have a show, have it for three years. I mean, wow. And I think you're right. The fact that it kind of, you know, died prematurely, let's say, or not, um, that it it's a little bit like a movie star or, you know, a rock star, unfortunately, who might pass too soon. Um, so there might be a kind of morbid, you know, the show was called Bored to Death, which was supposed to be like a noir, an ironic noir title, because in the original short story, the character is so bored yeah. uh, because he had, uh, I could say it here, he had tried heroin, uh, mm. snorted it, and he realized, oh my God, I've, I can't ever do that again. I have to put myself on lockdown. Mm -hmm. So the character is like puts himself on lockdown in his apartment and he plays internet backgammon all night rather than go out right. until this wish to try that again. So it was called bored to death because then death happens in the story and it's very noir. Mm -hmm. But the whole premise of that show in some ways was very literary. First of all, the character's a writer. Mm -hmm. Ted Danson runs a magazine. It was very much anticipating you know, the death of print, you know, the death of magazines, the books being endangered. I was scared about all these things. It was also about the literary world and how competitive it could be. And John Hodgman was brilliant as Jonathan's nemesis, Lewis Green. And, and then we even recreated the Dick Cavett show because it was, you know, oh my gosh, we had so much fun, but. It was great. Um, oh, oh, but the whole thing idea in many ways was a Don Quixote idea, which was a, probably the greatest novel I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And and Don Quixote is a man who reads so many books of chivalry about knights or reads tales about knights mm -hmm. that he thinks himself a knight. Yeah. So Jonathan had read, the Jonathan the character, mm -hmm. had read so much Raymond Chandler, kind of like me, that he had come to think of himself as a private detective. He had been driven mad by the books of Raymond Chandler. And that was also the premise of my novel, Wake Up, Sir. In that case, the narrator had lost his mind from reading too much P.G. Woodhouse and kind of thought he was in a Woodhouse novel. Mm -hmm. So I, I love, yeah, again, you know, so much of this is about the love of books, which is how our conversation began in a way. And I, I mean, yeah, it just, 
And I think of like, even like the way it ended, it's just such a, I mean, some could say that you were, cause this was an HBO show. You were the first one to introduce um, an incest narrative to HBO, which like, look, I feel like Game of Thrones should give you your, their credit in that sense. Um, even though George R. R. Martin wrote, you know, I'm just that. But um, no, I mean, like it just ended in such a thrilling way that like, you just want more. And I feel like, this is probably a question I shouldn't ask, but where, like, and I don't know if you've probably been asked this before, what, I mean, what would that Jonathan Amos be doing in 2020 or 2021 in uh, just like, where do you imagine him still like in that world? Um, two things, just going back, I, you know, it wasn't so much supposed to be about incest because it was all about, I, you know, I. I had heard a guy tell a story about, you know, uh, these, one of these crazy sperm donor people mm-hmm. who like, you know, they advertise, oh, we've got this, the sperm of geniuses. Mm-hmm. And so people go there thinking they're getting the sperm of a Nobel prize winner. And it was really just one guy. I mean, it was like, for such, there's been a number of weird stories like that. Yeah. So I was kind of playing on that. And so Jonathan, it turned out, it was not the product of his mother and father. Well, he's the product of his mother and a sperm donor, one of these so-called genius donor places. Mm-hmm. But it turned out it was just one man who was played by Stacy Keach, who famously had played a private detective. Yeah. And and then somehow Jonathan, I forget even how we, you know, meets mm-hmm. uh, his sister in trying to hunt down his real father. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned, but they didn't know that they were from the same. You know, so they were actually half brother, sister, mm-hmm. and they kind of fell for each other, played by uh, Isla Fisher. Yeah, Isla Fisher. And, um, and so it ends with Jonathan has solved the case, which was also kind of an Oedipal case of father and origin and birth. And, and so the series ended where he has solved this mystery, but, mm-hmm. you know, but he's like, oh my gosh. And so he was going to tell her but that was gonna be the beginning of season four. So it ends with them at a wedding dancing and he's got this incredible, this knowledge. And, yeah. and it was, so it was a great way in a sense to end because it was ended with them dancing. We had this magnetic field song. Um, I forget which one, which it was all about dancing. And mm-hmm. I, I love the magnetic fields. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so what would Jonathan be doing now? Which is, again, it's also weird. Because there was a while there when articles were being written about uh, bored to death. One funny thing, a lot of times journalists would say, the real Jonathan Ames. So it was kind of funny, like I I needed to have the adjective real. (laughs) Um, But, uh, well, I saw somebody, I think it was a bookseller from another independent store. You know, they write these little reviews. And I think this bookseller wrote something like, this is the book that I'm referring to a man named Dahl Mm -hmm. that Jonathan Ames, the TV character might've written because (laughs) in the TV show, the the Jonathan character started writing genre fiction as I am now, Mm -hmm. which had been my fantasy back then. And so he, I would say that maybe Jonathan has written a man named Dahl. That's what he would be doing in 2021. In 2020, he'd, we, that world finally gets that uh, novel. That's great. I mean, like, yeah, I can picture that. I, I that's such a good, um, 
now now I'm like rethinking that entirety of the show now in that frame of mind like wow he would have gotten there eventually that's I mean amazing um so yeah well, last oh sorry yeah. go on well one of my ideas one of the movie ideas for Born mm -hmm. to Death which I don't think will ever happen but one of the ideas I had was that eventually the Jonathan character would move to LA Mm -hmm. and become a private detective, really somehow managed to get a license so that you could really be at the heart of Chandler country here. And maybe Ted and Ray, or George and Ray, the characters' names would move to uh, Los Angeles. But, mm -hmm. but the thing is, a man named Dahl really is my continuation of, fascina of my fascination with the private detective novel that mm -hmm. is very much expressed in the TV show, Bored to Death. Uh, and one thing to know about the George Christopher character in Bored to Death, played by Ted Danson, hmm. um, he was the combination, in my mind, of George Plimpton and Christopher Hitchens, two hmm. really interesting New York literary figures that I met. And so I smushed their names together, hmm. like that old TV commercial about the um, uh, the chocolate bar that go falls into a... Uh, uh, thing of uh, peanut butter yeah. and that's how you got Snickers. This was an early Snickers commercial, I think, or one of those. I vaguely and, remember that, yeah. And so anyway, so just for literary people out there, he was, a, it was he, that character is very much an homage to literary figures, you know, like Hitchens, fascinating writer, and then George Plimpton, you know, the original editor of the Paris Review and the writer of many interesting books himself. Wow, I ooh, I mean that. I, now thinking about that, that does add some de more background to the George character that I think will make fans really appreciate him even more now. Um, so for the last thing I want to do, because you're such, you're one of our favorite customers because of how many books you come in and buy and read, and just you have such a like depth of knowledge on literature. Um, we want to make you an honorary bookseller for the end segment here. And you have books that <laughs> you um, would love to share with us. And just like we want you to sell, we're going to give you a paycheck. You're an honorary mm -hmm. Skylight employee. Um, you'll come to a staff meeting after this. It's fine. We'll talk about okay. it later. But <laughs> no, um, as a so as our honorary bookseller, what books do you have for us today? Yes. Well, first of all, you know, during this whole COVID time, mm -hmm. first place I went to after you know shopping for food was Skylight. As soon as you guys opened up, I was like raced over there with my mask and my mm -hmm. hand sanitizer. Mm -hmm. And it was like, yes, because I don't really go anywhere now mm -hmm. in life anyway, even before COVID, except for Skylight. Right. Um, anyway, so, <clears throat> uh, okay, well, a book I purchased recently and read at Skylight, What Happens at Night by Peter Cameron. Mm -hmm. Beautiful novel, highly recommend. Now, Peter was a former teacher of mine. This is an absolutely gorgeous book, What Happens at Night, Peter Cameron. Another book, which I'm going to dive into, uh, is by a former student of mine, mm -hmm. Anna North, called Outlawed. Um, I picked up, I met this writer, I got to read this also, The Removed by Brandon Hobson. Um, I'm going to dive into that. I recently, I bought at Skylight, Megan Abbott's Take My Hand, which I loved. Uh, mm -hmm. Also at Skylight, I picked up American Spy by Lauren Wilkerson, which I thought was brilliant, like a great spy thriller. 
uh, Adam Sternberg's The Blinds I Got at Skylight. Um, a book that was sent to me, I started reading, seems really fascinating. It's called Detransition Baby yes. by Tori Peters. Mm -hmm. And then a writer contacted me on Twitter. I ordered her book uh, from Skylight. Uh, it's called Daryl by Jackie S. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you guys have gotten it in yet. And then, um, and then I, um, I always, as you probably know, I'm really love reading books about Eastern religions. Mm -hmm. And so I've bought so many books by the Dalai Lama from you guys. He has this great series with the, this a woman writer that he works with named Thubten Chodron. I've been reading like his wisdom series. They're huge books. Uh, I, I constantly buy Pema Chodron books from you guys and then I give them to people as gifts. I uh, buy Tich Nahan books there. A wonderful Indian writer named Eknayath Esawaran. He writes about Hinduism, Buddhism. I buy his books at your store. Uh, and I also I buy tons of Ross McDonald novels from you guys, the old private detective novelist. Um, and yeah, so I guess those are some of the books. Uh, the Removed, Brandon Hobson, Outlawed, Anna North, What Happens at Night, Peter Cameron. Detransition Baby, Tori Peters, um, Ross McDonald, Dalai Lama, Pema Chodron, um, Megan Abbott, uh, mm -hmm. Lauren Wilkerson. So these are some of the people I've been reading lately and uh, and I hope that's a helpful honorary bookseller list. I think honestly better than I, better than mine, honestly, right? That's such a great list. Listeners, you have reading to do. <laughs> you have a a uh, great reading list and all these books as Jonathan said you could get at Skylight and they are yeah for sale and highly recommended um no Jonathan this has been fantastic this has been a fantastic conversation oh thank you another book I picked up from you oh, yeah. guys is uh, a South American writer Clarice uh Spector or something um I oh don't uh, um yes Respector. It's um something like that. I could run to my bed. It's by my bed. No, I and I know the uh, title. Then we go Spector, right? Yeah, Spector. I think. Yeah. Is it the the um hour of the star? It's better to go get the book real quick. So just I, so I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't find it. Um, mm -hmm. But I found another book that someone um, I didn't get at your store, but was sent to me from another independent bookstore in New York because I mm -hmm. ordered a friend's novel from there because he was signing them there. A, a wonderful writer named Joseph Caldwell. Caldwell. Mm -hmm. I'll add that to the list. Um, this book is called Lazarus Rising. And then yes. they sent me a book by someone named Adam Mars Jones called Box Hill. But I think it's Clarice Lispector or something like that. And she seems really interesting. I'm looking forward to getting into her. And she has yeah. a great body of work too. Clarice yeah. yeah, I know. I feel like, oh, I want to, yeah, I always love to find a nice, a good vein of books by an author. And uh, recently I also dipped back into Flannery O'Connor. Mm -hmm. um, and then, oh, just uh, a friend of mine who's a wonderful writer is Susan Minot. She had a book come out recently mm -hmm. uh, called Why I Don't Write. Um, so anyway, those are some of the list. No, I mean, that's a, again, fantastic list. And I think our 
I mean, thank you for being a bookseller. <laughs> thank you for selling us on, I mean, you sold me on some of them. I'm very interested. I mean, I've been meaning to dive into Clarice Lispector's work, um, Meg Abbott's like, especially she's, I mean, she's someone I feel like even before I knew her works, I knew, before I like knew of her, I knew her work. You know what I mean? She's like, so um, there, I mean, and also you, before I knew uh, Jonathan Ames, the writer, and I, early I knew, I knew of you and your work, but I knew of, I like peripherally knew you in a way that I feel like is so important for, I mean, writers and that's the influence I think is so important. So thank you for your work and thank you for um, being that uh, for other writers. Um, well, one more that I picked up that I need to read is uh, hmm. Ivy Picotto's most recent book. Um, and I, I, I can't, I don't have it right in front of me, but I, her most recent book I also got. Ivy Picotta, I, you are just, you are just giving, giving, giving. Thank you so much. Well, I, very nice. So <laughs> thank you for talking with me. No, and I always like seeing you in the store and I just yeah. love Skylight and, you know, oh yeah, did you want me to, like you said something, I just think independent bookstores, I mean, at this point, I was around you know, when Barnes and Noble got so huge and everyone was really scared, like Barnes and Noble. And they did in New York back in the day, they got so huge that a lot of smaller stores closed. Mm -hmm. and, and so we all felt threatened, but now it's like, come back Barnes and Noble. The fact that Barnes and Noble was opening so many stores in the nineties and early two thousands, like books were still you know, and the bookstores were a destination. You'd go yeah. to Barnes Noble, drink coffee and all that. And so now, but independent stores are so important, especially in the age of Amazon. And it's just such a community. Yeah. Right? Just bookstores are, you know, are like teachers. They're just valuable mm -hmm. lifeblood of the culture. And, um, and so I'm glad that you guys have been able to weather the pandemic and please keep weathering it. And, uh, and, you know, I'm just so grateful for your presence. It's my favorite place to go in Los Angeles. No, we're thankful for your <laughs> continued support of us. You, I mean, the events you do with us, you always make sure to like include us in just every time you put out a book or just uh, you make sure to like shout out your local bookstore, Skylight. So thank you. I mean, we at Skylight are just, when I when this podcast idea was even just in early formation and everyone was like, yeah, Jonathan, this is, he's even to the point where they're, I feel like you're not even, you're just our customer, Jonathan. You're a valued customer at Skylight and just um, always so, we're always so happy to see you in the store. I know everyone is. So. Isn't it crazy though that in 2002, it, it, in talking to him, like, Mm -hmm. 19 years ago, I gave a reading there that was so important for <clears throat> me eventually moving to LA because I yeah. might not have ever started writing uh, for, you know, Hollywood if that producer, Braxton Pope, uh, mm -hmm. wasn't sitting there in that audience. And I had met him at a wedding. I didn't remember meeting him. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he's a sweet guy, but I, my, I'm just often just out of it. So, uh, but then he showed up at this reading and that was life-changing. And if I hadn't given that reading at Skylight, it wouldn't have happened. 
And then 2018, I guess I gave a nice reading there for You Were Never Really Here. Mm -hmm. And then we all went down to the Dresden. And then I guess maybe I could close with this. And A Man Named Doll, my character has an office on Vermont, <laughs> uh, just a little bit down the street from the Dresden and Skylight. Yeah. So I got to work Skylight into the next novel since I mean, that, you know, his stomping grounds. We're, we're ready. We will, I mean, I think it's going to be a good, if like you need like a mystery noir, if you need someone dead, I'm down. Like you can use me as a dead character, unnamed. I don't care, but I'm oh, down. God. <laughs> um, maybe I only had an image of my cat, happy doll getting sapped, you know, hit from behind <laughs> while he's browsing the books and then you've come and find him, you know, and then yeah. something like that. No, I, I'm ready. This is, this is it. This is it. This is perfect. This is, um, this is what we signed up for. Thanks. This is why we did the, I'm joking. It's not why we did the podcast, but thank you so much for this. This has been fantastic. And you have, uh, just to repeat again, you have your event on the 20th, April 20th at 6 30 PM. And yeah, you can still sign up online. You're going to be with Nick Kroll, which is so exciting to see both him, um, in conversation with you. It's going to be, I mean, a fantastic, um, event and even if you couldn't you can't make it to that a day you can watch it on crowdcast later on and but what you don't want to miss is getting a signed copy of um a man named doll um by jonathan um at nosa restaurant yes nosa, yeah, restaurant. nosa restaurant on hillhurst on hillhurst from two to four yeah my new neighbors uh they run the restaurant they're so mm -hmm. sweet they'll be able to socially distanced and mm -hmm. there'll be food and drink and books awesome. and all that. And then Nick Kroll, we're doing the event on 420, uh, which is a good date for the book because the character does smoke a little. And <laughs> uh, But Nick is someone I used to perform with back in the East Village 20 wow. years ago. And just to end Lance, I always mm -hmm. at the end of my readings make this crazy sound called the Harry Call which is a sound my friends and I would make on the playground when being attacked by more normal children. <laughs> so I'll just send the podcast listeners off with a hairy call. Ready. So there we are. Where are we? Nothing past that. That's it. That's the end. You guys, that's it. I'm pressing <laughs> stop recording because we have nothing else to talk about. Um, thank you. Thank you. All for right. That. I will see you soon, Lance. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.